0: Best Book Bits podcast brings you the authors of Love is a Business Strategy, Resilience, Belonging, and Success by Muhammad Anwar and Frank Dana. Thanks for being on the show, guys.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having us. Hey, great to see you.
0: Um, And for my audience that don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey, and what got you here. I'll start with you, Muhammad.
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Muhammad Anwar. I am the president uh, of Softway, which is a technology company um, that was founded 18 years ago while I was in college pursuing my computer science degree. And uh, within about 10 years of running the business, uh, starting off as a 20-year-old entrepreneur, I believed that I had hit the pinnacle of success. I was driving my fancy cars, flying planes around Texas and <clears throat> living the life on, of an entrepreneur or living the American dream, especially for someone like me as an immigrant to this country. So that's where I was and then all of a sudden 2015, our company was on the verge of bankruptcy. We were almost 300 employees at the time and uh, we were struggling to sustain our business and our people, our team members were quitting um, and our clients were firing us and all of the things were happening that was quite contrary to what I wanted out of the company. And in the moment of introspection, I had this big realization that this is all my fault, my selfish attitude and my behaviors had led us to create a toxic workplace culture, which was why everything was happening that was happening. Fortunately, um, I was able to uh, work on myself and my behaviors and went through a transformation journey that then eventually spread through the organization, the other leaders. To where we not only survived, but we ended up thriving. Uh, we were able to triple our revenues from 2016 to 2019, and uh, you know, drop our attrition rate from 30% to 13%, uh, increased our EBITDA differential um, to by 45%, and um, all of a sudden, our customers noticed the change and they asked us to help them with their culture transformation. And as a technology company, we're like, we don't know anything about culture. So I don't know how you expect us to help you guys, but we ended up doing that. And from there, we found our new mission and vision, which is to bring back humanity to the workplace. And so we uh, wrote a book called Love as a Business Strategy to share our story and share our learnings more so than our successes. And so there you have it a quick introduction to our journey and where we are.
0: Great story. We'll uh, dive deeper through those topics soon. But, Franks, what's your story and how did you and Muhammad meet and how did you come about with uh, this book?
1: Yeah, it's actually interesting. I've known Muhammad for a long time um, before I even joined Software uh, from a different startup that I had worked with and he had worked alongside as well. But I joined Software officially in 2014. I worked there for about seven years now as the director of culture. And you know, I had I had known Muhammad outside of work um, and inside of work, and I had seen a very different person because, you know, w- starting a company as you know that being your only job, like for Muhammad it was his only job, um, he had tried to emulate the the leaders that he had seen build successful large scale enterprises and organizations, and so he kind of created his behavior to model that, and as he began on his journey and kind of that self realization journey. He started to invite other leaders in the organization to do that, but it took me many years to actually recognize my place and where I could actually begin to help serve the needs of our team and develop a culture within the teams that I served as well. For a long time, I saw Muhammad as the, the, the arbiter of culture and, and someone who uh, was really the only one responsible for creating this love as a business strategy. And I didn't really see myself in it. And it took me a little while to actually find that way, and it actually was on a flight that we were taking to to Prague. Um, well we were landing in Prague, going to our India team in Bangalore and um, he he mentioned to me that hey I ha- I've been showcasing this approach to you, and I've been hopeful that you would you would pick it up and begin implementing it for yourself, but I haven't seen that and I was like, "This is a really weird way for you to fire me as we're leaving." You're getting further away from the United States, Muhammad, what is going on here? But he was, he was giving me critical feedback saying, I'm inviting you into this. I want you to be a part of it. And I think that's really where my story picks up is recognizing the, the place that I have to create a catalyst for the people that I'm working with and leading every single day. And it's not the leaders, the top leaders responsibility to create this change. And it's also, I heard about a story, um, a, a couple days ago, from someone who, as soon as the CEO left the organization, who was a great person who created great culture, everything fell apart. And I asked her a very simple question. I said, did the directors, did the vice presidents, did the leaders, did they believe it too? Or was it all on that person's shoulders? And she replied and said, I only really saw the CEO being the person who was driving this change. And I said, well, well, that's the problem is you didn't have more people in the organization that truly believed it and lived it. And my journey and the journey of many of our my colleagues is one of learning it for ourselves and then being able to implement it. And so I'm right alongside Muhammad here um, as a co-author of the book because you know we've both made our fair share of mistakes. And the book that we've written is about the mistakes we've made and in in earnest to try to help people see an opportunity and a path forward. So that's, that's really why we created love as a business strategy, not to show you all the right things, but rather we're real people making real mistakes in business. Here's how we can move forward together.
0: Yeah. I think it's an exciting time uh, for the book coming out with new and exciting leaders coming out that can really showcase love and, and what it can do for a business strategy. Um, people want to work in a loving environment. Talk to me about your business and, and software and how it came about.
2: Sure. So, Softway is the company that um, we all work for, me and Frank and our coworkers. And as I mentioned before, it's a technology company, but today our vision is we are a technology company focused on transforming workplace cultures for our clients. So, we will leverage technology to help with culture change and behavior change, which we believe is the foundations of, you know, uh, building the right culture is your behaviors, individual behaviors. So we help facilitate experiences uh, for leaders called Seneca Leaders, where we take them through a two-day workshop uh, of an introspective journey through our storytelling so they can hear our stories and see themselves in through our stories and see where they've made mistakes and hopefully come to the realization and commitment to change their behaviors. And then we have Uh, digital or technology-based products like mobile applications, uh, online learning platforms, and metric uh, like measurement tools to help with organizations and people of the organizations go on their individual behavior change journeys. So these are asynchronous technology platforms used to help people hold them accountable, have micro-learning opportunities, do an introspective journal, learn more about themselves and how they are experienced with their coworkers, because culture at the end of the day is how you're treated and how you feel around your coworkers. So how can we make them more introspective, self-aware and start be, uh, transforming their behaviors to create a better culture? So we built a, tech, a suite of technology products to do that. And then in this virtual world, since uh, you know we're all remote and we can't really have a same in-person experience or training and are going through leadership experiences, we've created technology products to help us make our virtual sessions more interactive and inclusive. So we have a second screen mobile application that we use together with Zoom to take people through experiences, interactive uh, things with each other in the class, plus with the instructor, making it more inclusive and people's voice heard, and they are participating in activities that keeps them heavily engaged. So we leverage technology wherever we can to help empower the true asset of any organization, which is the people, by helping them change their behaviors and mindsets.
0: Yeah, great recap. Now, Frank, this one's a, a question for you. You're a, a director of culture at the company, Software. Um, why is culture so important in the workplace?
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's first, it's important to, to define culture. Um, and it is, it is that emotional environment and experience that is created through the behaviors that each of us has, right? And so the reason why it's vital to an organization is because the way people behave in teams, the way I may trust you to make a decision or empower you or forgive you for an act actually creates or destroys the ability to be a better performing team or a better performing organization at large. And so what we have started to, to find, and we've built a framework out that actually supports this approach is that when you focus on behavior, which is really the combination of your mindsets, your attitudes, and the way you communicate, that ladders up to a culture, which we call the culture of love. And that culture of love is able to truly support a, a high performing organization. And what's really important about that is when you actually have high performance, you have efficiencies and efficiencies are important because your processes and even the technologies and tools that are created are created to support high-performing individuals, not people that are low-performing. So you're producing opportunities for people to have environments to create and you're reducing cost at the same time. And why that's valuable is because that ultimately creates more revenue or operational efficiency or cost containment. So when you begin with focusing on culture and creating an environment where people feel included, where they can bring their best selves to work, where they can be open to speak their mind, where they know that their voice will be heard, where they'll be trusted and empowered to go beyond their skill sets, where their leaders are behaving in ways that create opportunity for innovation and, and spark of new creativity you're actually an ending with business outcomes. So culture is paramount to building an organization that can thrive and that can become resilient. And it's a responsibility of every leader to understand how their behavior creates or destroys culture and then what they can do about it to, to further the actual business outcomes they're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, Muhammad, this is probably a question for you. Uh, the book's called Love as a Business Strategy. What is your definition of love?
2: Sure. Uh, For me to explain how, why love is being used in the business context, I'll have to give you a quick story of something that happened for us, uh, for me particularly. So in 2015, I had to make layoffs for almost a hundred plus employees out of the 300 employees. And we did so in a very inhumane manner. And uh, I was guilty to that. I'm the one who made that decision. And, and uh, so after the layoffs, I was, um, very like morale was low in the company. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't even know if the doors of Software would remain open, and I was quite demotivated. Um, two weeks after the layoffs, I had an opportunity to go to a collegiate football game, which is not like Australian football, but this is the American football. Um, and uh, in the game, this is from my uh, alumni uh, you know, organization where I graduated from, University of Houston. We were in this game and we were losing by 20 points, which is like really bad. Going into the fourth quarter, which is like the last quarter of the game, we were losing by 20 points and ESPN predicted we have 0.1% chance of winning that night. So I was very disappointed and didn't know if, you know, University Houston would win that night. I wanted to leave because I was already disappointed. But something inside of me told me, stay back, stay back and watch and be there to support your team. I witnessed one of the best comebacks in coll- collegiate football history. University of Houston ended up winning that night by a point with less than 30 seconds left. And so I started to see software through the eyes of the University of Houston football team. And I was determined, I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna keep fighting. It's a very resilient story. So the following Monday, I logged on to the press conference where the coach was speaking about the victory uh, from Saturday night. And in that press conference, uh, the reporters asked what had led to the success of his team. How did this team come back with resiliency and end up winning that night when all odds were against them? And he attributed that to love. And he said, it was the love that these team members have for one and each other. And this is the culture that we practice in our team where we go on that field to fight for the person next to us and not for yourself. And when you're able to fight for the person next to you, you will go far above and beyond doing things for yourself. And this is not the love you dog kind of love. This is like a genuine you have my heart in your hand kind of love. which is that kind of brotherhood and love that made us win that night. And so as a result of hearing words like culture of love and love and love for one another, and I was so inspired to try and save Softway, I began to contemplate, do I love my team? Do I care for the people of Softway? And um, a resounding answer was no, I don't. I don't love my team. And so I began on this journey to understand how can I love my team and what do I need to do to create a culture of love? Because if a sports team with um, you know medium level players are able to go win a game that night because of their culture, then I can do the same at Softway. And so I was inspired to pursue a culture of love inside of business. Now, it's very common to hear uh, you know love in sports team analogies, but not at the workplace. However, we use, ver- sports analogies at the workplace, but not their culture. We talk about you play offense, I'll play defense, but no one talks about the culture of love that sports team members have. So I set out to do that and practice and implement that at Softway by starting with myself. And I recognized that love can be a business strategy and love was the business strategy that got Softway out of its predicament, but also made us so super successful and that's why we believe love as a business strategy can help you achieve resilience, belonging, and success for businesses.
1: And, and if, I could, if I could add to that, I think, I think that, that story sets it up well because when we talk about a culture of love, just so people understand what we're saying, we aren't talking about office romance. So this isn't like an HR dumpster fire. In a business context, this has nothing to do with romantic feelings at all. Love as a business strategy means putting people like an individual at the center of work by creating a workplace that puts humanity first. So that's, that's what we're talking about because we see the way we see it. And I think the way other business leaders would see it, there's not one number on a balance sheet that isn't connected to a human being that you could point to that isn't connected to an individual in your organization. This means that if you want to produce better numbers over the long term, you should support and empower the people behind the numbers. So we're focusing on humanity, but also recognizing and not and not just focusing on profit. Right. And that's and that's really kind of the core essence of what Muhammad was building to and really what we're what we're talking about with love as a business strategy. It is action oriented, seeing the the humanity of the individual.
0: Yeah, it just makes sense. I mean, when you reverse engineer the world, it all comes back to people, it all comes back to love. Look at, you know, the community, church, family, anything at all. It's um It's all about loving people, is it not?
2: Absolutely, so yeah, I'll start and you can add on, Frank. But yes, we have uh, worked with um, uh, quite a few organizations where we've gone in and supported their culture transformation efforts. Um, As far as can you teach old dog treats, I mean, tricks. I mean, I'm messing up the analogy, forgive me. But uh, the point of the matter is that humans are capable of a lot of potential like no matter what age or background or demography or generation you come from. Because the kind of values love as a business strategy wants to aspire for is that uh, for any human across the globe would aspire for. The feeling of being respected, valued, included, being able to you know contribute and be recognized for who you are That is a humanistic value that no matter who you are, where you come from, how old you are, um, where you sit in the organization, everybody aspires for. And so when you're able to show what's in it for them, what's in it for every individual inside of the organization and show them that this is a a universal value that we're aspiring to create uh, a space for, everybody is first of all, willing to be committed. And so we try to get the organization to a state of commitment that every individual in the organization, starting with the topmost leaders, are committed to building an environment where human values are, are espoused for. And they can clearly see how it does not have to come at the compromise of business outcomes. In fact, taking care of people, Gets you to le- uh, leads you to better business outcomes, and when you can get them to believe that and understand that business rationality does not have to be against humanistic moral values, and we align the two, you get people to commitment, and from there, you are able to allow to support each and every one to get on their journey of changing their behaviors. What we have trained ourselves over the course of years of working for the corporations, and if we create an environment of accountability where each everyone else is supporting each other on their journey of behavior transformation, then you have not just the commitment of everyone, but you have the support of everyone to help you go on that journey. And the culture framework is that that is built on inclusion, empathy, vulnerability, uh, trust, empowerment, and lastly, forgiveness. So when you have these pillars as your values, then people are able to forgive each other for their past mistakes, for how they were treated uh, in the past. They're able to be vulnerable and say, you know what, I don't know everything. And they are able to practice empathy, not from their lens, but from other people's lens and treat others by the way they want to be treated, not by the way you want to be treated. And so when you're able to show all of these values and how it benefits everyone, uh, it's quite easy to motivate even uh, a 40-year service-oriented employee to say, that's what I want. And even if I'm going close out to retirement, all of them want is a legacy. (laughs) They ultimately want to be remembered as that leader that made a difference, not as a leader who was a jerk. And so that is enough motivation, even for someone who's close to retirement, to do what is the right thing. And so once you get people motivated and committed, it's very easy, Michael, to get them to start changing their behaviors.
1: And I think just to add to that, you know, we, we named this love as a business strategy, but it could be like love as a lifestyle strategy, because one of the, one of the stories that really sticks with me and Mohammed mentioned earlier that we ended up creating this, this two-day experience that we've been able to facilitate in 10 countries around the world, um, taking over 10 cities around the world with, representatives from 46 different countries. Um, and, and as a result of doing that, one of the, the most powerful moments was a, a home life story of transformation or a desire to be better that one of our attendees on day one left very quiet, um, very introspective. And as he left, um, he, uh, he stopped his motorbike by a uh, store and bought his children and his wife flowers. Um, as, as an apology and when he got home, he asked them for forgiveness for how he had been putting their needs below the needs of his job and that he was, was committed to refocusing his life on creating a, a an opportunity to focus on his family. And that was an, that was an output of a business leader experience. And what we have seen is that like Muhammad mentioned, this is the humanistic approach. Um, we're talking about building better humans and if it ends up happening inside or outside of work, we consider it a win because that means that ultimately people will see themselves as a work in progress and they'll be able to bring their full selves to work and create an environment where everyone can thrive.
0: Talk to me about toxic cultures and how you can turn toxic cultures around.
2: Sure. So the core concept of that chapter focuses on, uh, uh, uh psychological safety which is how can people uh, feel safe to share their ideas or give feedback and not be afraid of repercussions or ridicule of their ideas, right? Like blowback or so, so and so forth. So if someone comes to a meeting and they have a great idea but they're afraid to share it because they don't know if it's their place. They don't know if people will appreciate it, will judge them or any of that stuff. So when you have fear, in that environment of being able to open up and call out what is what and speak to it, you're not psychologically safe. And so the whole idea is if we can create an environment where people trust each other, respect each other, value each other, and our behaviors are such that we do not foster an environment of fear, but an environment of love, then people can be more open and psychologically safe to bring up ideas that could probably save the company millions of dollars or solve a business problem or solve a safety incident. For example, environments like hospital systems, psychological safety is utmost important. If a nurse is scared of a doctor and he or she refuses to speak up that the doctor is administering 10 grams of a medication instead of one gram, (laughs) that could cause a person to lose their life, which by the way, happens every day in the world, it seems like, then you're not psychologically safe because you're afraid of authority, afraid of maybe the doctor will not appreciate you speaking up or calling them out or they will lash out at you. So psychological safety leads to not just physical safety outcomes, but also business outcomes. And so if we all operate together and create that environment, you can see tremendous value for the business and business outcomes. So that's what the that whole chapter focus on. How do you create those behaviors? How do you create that environment? What is a role of a leader? What is the role of the peers to be able to do that?
0: Yeah, great story. Um, jumping into the book, Frank, a question for you. Uh, great little chapter I read, which was called Behavior Eats uh, Culture for Lunch. Do you want to expand on that and talk to me a little bit about that chapter?
1: So yeah, yeah, we can talk about that because that's an interesting statement. Um, So we're, we're probably familiar with the Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Like we've, we've most likely heard that at one point in our lives. The reason why we talk about behavior, eating culture for lunch is because if you think about, again, as we defined culture, culture is the experiences and emotional impact that our behavior has on each other, like from person to person. That's what creates a culture, not the perks or benefits, not the ping pong tables and the, the terrible coffee that they offer. Um. The reality is that culture is the way that we behave. Culture is vital to making a strategy work. So that's why culture eats strategy for breakfast. But if we understand culture to be the way we operate and behave with each other, then behavior has to eat culture for lunch, meaning the actual place that we should start isn't focusing on writing our culture, it's focused on introspecting on how we behave with each other to create a culture that can then create a winning team that can drive strategic initiatives and make them actually stick. So this chapter is really focused on what actually is behavior. Like if we were to break down behavior into its most basic fundamental components, what is it? And behavior is quite simply your mindset, the way you see the world, your attitude, the way you portray that mindset. And then the way you communicate that attitude to other people. And so that's, that's really the approach that we take with it is just, if we're saying that behaviors eat culture for lunch, you have to really understand what on earth makes up behavior. And we dive a little deeper into the attributes of what creates behavior and the motivations behind it.
2: Yeah. I would say that, sorry, I was just going to say that not just solve people problems, but you can actually solve process and technologies problems as well, if you actually start with the behaviors, which is the mindsets of the leaders, because these systems are put into place by leaders. And if the leaders have a mindset that is fixed or biased, you will see that reflect in the system. So if you really wanna make better efficient systems and technology as uh, decisions as well, you have to start with people's behaviors. So when you hear systemic issues, they're really people issues. <laughs> That start with mindsets and behaviors. You fix the mindsets and behaviors, you'll have better systems. That's the moral of the lesson.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, you talk about a chapter in the book about inclusion. Can you talk to me a little bit about more uh, about inclusion?
2: Sure. So, you know, th- there's a lot of uh, conversation nowadays in the world, especially about diversity and inclusion, where diversity comes first and inclusion is the second part of that equation. And some organizations do it the other way around. But what we believe is that you cannot truly harness the true power of diversity uh, if you are not inclusive. And so if you really want to take advantage of all the different diversity around you, whether that's you know diversity that's visible to the naked eye, like our race, ethnicity, gender, but also take it to the next level, which are the things that are invisible to us, which is how we behave, how we act, how we think. Everyone has a different perspective and different way that they operate. So if you want to really harness that value, we have to create an environment of inclusion where people's voices are heard, no matter what their background is, where you're making space for them to bring their ideas to the table, where we're able to give them opportunities to even come to the table, let alone their voice heard. So we have to make sure that we are creating an inclus- inclusive environment first. Because if we don't create an inclusive environment, you could go mix hire people from different diverse backgrounds and still not be able to retain them or harness the value of diversity. And so that's why we focused on the pillar of inclusion as a starting point uh, for creating a culture of love.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing. Uh, Frank, a question for you, uh, a chapter in there about vulnerability and trust. Can you expand? A little bit on vulnerability and trust for me
1: yeah trust is trust is interesting um one of the one of the parts that i really want to focus on when it comes to trust is something that i had to had to learn and that when i'm able to be vulnerable and share something with someone uh, and trust them with that understanding that my relationship with them won't change as a result of them knowing something about me that could impact that relationship. So for instance, with me in the book, I, I mentioned something that is, uh, I, something I struggle with and I'm not going to mention it here. Cause you know, if you want to read it, love is a business strategy now available at all major retailers. But, um, one, one of the important elements was that, you know, a, a something that has defined me for, for so long that has become a crippling fear of mine of, of letting people in to what, you know, this, this situation, um, once I had relationship with people that I was able to share with them, um, what this thing was, it really transformed my approach because I was able to fully understand that my relationship with them actually overpowered my fear of being found out. But the, the the core foundation of trust in this chapter is something that we talk about between the differences of predictive trust and vulnerability-based trust. And predictive trust is quite simply the idea that, you know, you know, how someone's going to predict, you're going to predict what they may think or do. So you're only going to do or assign something to someone that has everything to do with what you've seen them do previously. So predictive trust is I've seen you do this before, or I think you can maybe have the cognitive load to deliver this. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do it again. And predictive trust is really where a majority of teams are working from today. Because, you know, Michael, you know, what I've seen you deliver in the past is what I think you can deliver in the future. And it limits the trajectory of people in teams because it doesn't allow people to go beyond their skill sets, you know, to try something new. That's why you have turnover in organizations because people feel like they're stagnant. So they're like, I need to go somewhere else where I'm actually given a chance to try the other side of it. The flip side of it is vulnerability based trust. And that is where you're able to trust someone to go beyond the skill set that you've even seen and the value that that creates, not only in that person's life, but also in the ability to create a team dynamic where people are given a chance to try and if you're creating a space for people to fail, you're still creating a really inclusive environment for people to bring their full selves and even go beyond what they're capable or what they think they're capable of doing. My example of that is everything that Muhammad has ever done for me inside of this organization. Um, What I'm doing now is only a result of Muhammad believing that I was capable of doing it without ever seeing me do it. And him knowing me just a little bit of what he knows is able to say, I've never seen you tackle that, but I know if I give it to you, you'll tackle it and you'll do probably better than what I would expect someone to do. And. So that's that's part of that that trust element And there's two distinct el- approaches to trust that we break down in the book
0: talk to me about people processes and technology
1: yeah so that's that's chapter 13 we talk about we tell a story of um the systems that we had in place and uh, you know ultimately this entire book is built on storytelling right it is literally our own lived experiences um, but this story we talk about um we discuss some biometric tracking systems that we had in our India office and the intentionality behind these systems and this technology that was put in place. Um, you know, and Hey, we told pe- people, listen, this is for security, confidentiality, etc. But what we actually used it for was when people arrived late to work, we would punish them in different ways. So we would dock their pay as a result of them coming into work or uh, like if they were late, for instance, um, and you know if if HR hadn't uh, assigned or been aligned to them coming in late, they would actually like lose that pay for that day. And there were other issues that we had around you know folks not putting in leave appropriately. And so as a result of taking leave for you know vacations or other things, some sometimes they wouldn't actually get paid as a result of these processes that were put in place. So we talked about um, you know if people wouldn't apply for formal vacation leaves. The, the system that we had in place, not the biometric scanning system, but this HR system that we had would literally mark them as absent and would also dock their pay. And we wouldn't even tell them about it in advance, right? So people would get their paychecks and only see a third of their paycheck at the end of the month. So you can imagine this is not a good approach, um, at all. And what we started to realize is number one, these are inhumane ways of treating human beings. Um, and needed to be rectified, which they were, but what we actually recognized is that the people problems shouldn't be addressed or fixed through process and technology. They're fixed through behavior and, and culture and team dynamics. And so what's, what's an issue is when you're confronted with a system that doesn't work as it should, we typically look for ways to add an additional layer of process or tweak or add to, or modify the system itself, instead of looking at whether or not the system was crucially flawed or whether the system was put in place from people that were trying to harm others or had unforgiveness towards people because someone in an organization took advantage of something. And so instead of, instead of calling it out and saying, Hey, this individual needs to be dealt with, let's create an entire process and a system in order to make sure that everyone complies. And, and that's really what this, this chapter is about. It's diving into the realities of what we do when a people problem isn't solved with people, ways of solving the problems and rather when it's applying a system or process or technology to it and how it can actually advance an organization or cripple it as a result.
0: It's a good segue from my last question. Um, what is the Seneca leaders?
2: Cool. So Seneca leaders is this two day experience that we crafted uh, originally for our own leadership. So when I began on my journey, um, I had been on the journey for almost two, three years, and then I needed my rest of my leaders to also start following the footsteps that I had laid the foundation for. So in order to bring about a catalyst to get them to recognize and have that self-awareness that I did for myself in 2015, I wanted to create and simulate that environment for other leaders in our own company. And so we created this two-day experience, back then it was called Mindshift. And from there, we created a product for the rest of our customers, where we take leaders uh, and upcoming leaders through a two-day experience workshop, where we take them through an introspective journey through storytelling, through empathic storytelling. So like, for example, facilitators like myself will share Here is our lived experience. This is what I made mistakes leader to leader. This is what I went through. This is where I failed. And by doing that, we're allowing the rest of the audience to also get vulnerable and open up and see themselves through our storytelling and get to a point of realization and self-awareness. So two days of a course like that gets people to recognize how their behaviors are causing harm to the culture and how they can commit to transforming those behaviors. So it's a two day experience, less of a training. It's not led by the academic side or case study side, but leader to leader, here are our lived experiences which you can relate to. So let's talk about how our behaviors can change to build, build a better culture and environment for our organizations. So that's what Seneca Leaders is.
0: It all sounds great. Uh, before we wrap up, sort of where can people find the book?
1: Yeah, I would say, Amazon is a great spa- place to start. Uh, we have it, um, every every book seller has it, uh, some Barnes Noble, uh, Apple, if you wanted to buy for, for Apple Books. Um, we also have an audiobook version of the book as well. It's available through Audible. So really anywhere that you're purchasing the books, um, you know our, our book should be available. And we'd, we'd love to um, to get your feedback as well and, and hear from you. If you get a chance to read it, uh, you can reach out directly to us via lovesofbusinessstrategy.com. Um, and that's where you can also find out more information about it and about Seneca leaders and some of the other, um, content. So throughout the book, we do have, um, elements that people can actually find on our website as resources. So as we go through and talk about some of these elements that we discussed, even today, um, there are, there are resources that we've created specifically for the book readers. So as you're going through the journey of reading the book, there are additional elements that you can use, uh, for yourself as you're going through that journey also, that's on, our website, loveisabusinessstrategy.com.
0: Question for each of you, starting with, uh, Frank, what's the last message you want to leave my
1: audience? You know, I was, I was inspired by, uh, over this past weekend, we got a chance to, to take some time as the Seneca leaders facilitation team and, and step away, um, and get kind of prepared for gearing up for doing more in-person experiences again. And there's something that Muhammad said during our conversation that really stuck with me that is still continuing to stick with me is you can't change anyone else, but yourself. What you can do is influence others and you can influence others through your behavior, but the only person you can really change is you. And that's what I would say. If you're interested in reading this book is consider yourself as you're reading it, not who you should give this to, to subtly like jab them into reading it, saying, this is what you do. You do the same thing, but consider for yourself. And for a moment, your the need for you to improve and change. Instead of looking at everyone else, consider yourself.
0: And Mohammed, for you?
2: Sure. I think the last message I would leave is for the rest of the audience is that, you know, the workplace has changed. We've actually track uh, a workplace revolution by virtue of the pandemic. It's actually made everyone realize out there that, you know what, I don't have to go work with people I don't enjoy working with. I don't have to be at the office every day being micromanaged. I can be respected, valued, and uh, treated for who I am. And I think for many years, up until COVID, people believed that this is just what workplace is. It's just business. It's this rational thing. It's there's. It's nothing personal. But the reality is that um, life, is comprised of work and work makes a big part of our lives and we all have a right to have a better workplace. And uh, I would just leave the audience with hope and a message of love that this uh, the humanity will persist and we will succeed and workplace is no different. We can be humanistic and take care of each other and be there for each other, whether we're hit with a world pandemic or we have a business crisis. And so keep having faith and belief that we can have a better work environment so that we may be better parents, brothers, siblings, neighbors, uh, human beings for this uh, planet Earth. So that's my last message.
0: I want to thank you both for being on the Best Book Bits podcast. Um, to my audience, go out there, follow these guys, uh, buy this book, check it out. It's fantastic. Mohammed Frank, thanks for being on the Best Book Bits podcast. Appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael.
0: Thanks very much. Have a great day. Okay, bye.